The following talk was given by Danica Shoan Ankle. Shoan is a senior monastic at Zen Mountain Monastery and serves as the training coordinator and creative director for the Mountains and Rivers Order. She is also a textile artist and oversees the Tenkozan line of handmade items, designed and crafted for the monastery store. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or to find out more about our various programs, please visit us online at zmm.org. Thanks for listening. Hope you're cooking right along. Um, I wanted to draw on um, some teachings on encountering Buddha since um, that is an excellent way to observe and celebrate this experience that he had. These are the words of Huang Bo coming to us across the centuries, about 1,200 years. All Buddhas and all ordinary beings are nothing but the one mind. This mind is beginningless and endless, unborn and indestructible. It has no color or shape, neither exists nor doesn't exist, isn't new or old, long or short, large or small since it transcends all measures, limits, names, and comparisons. It is what you see in front of you. Start to think about it, and immediately you are mistaken. It is like the boundless void, which cannot be fathomed or measured. The one mind is the Buddha, and there is no distinction between Buddha and ordinary beings, except that ordinary beings are attached to forms and thus seek Buddhahood outside themselves. By this very seeking, they lose it, since they are using Buddha to seek for Buddha, using mind to seek for mind. Even if they continue for millions of eons, they will never be able to find it. They don't know that all they have to do is put a stop to conceptual thinking and the Buddha will appear before them because this mind is the Buddha and the Buddha is all living beings. We are Buddha. Buddha is nowhere else. Is it hard to encounter Buddha? In some ways, yes. Yes. In some ways, no. So close. So close. We can feel this simplicity, ease, possibility, just with that first spark that kind of called us to the Dharma or that heard the teachings and thought, okay, let me investigate this further. 
somewhere we know, yeah, I am Buddha. Somewhere we know. And then at the same time, (laughs) we're struggling. Life is so hard. We're such a crazy mess. So angry or insecure or depressed. How could we be Buddha? But mm, anyone doing Rahatsu has enough faith to sit down, to begin to um, take the teaching at its word. Don't go anywhere. Don't seek outside. So we take our seat. We are literally not going anywhere. And though we can spend a lot of time seeking outside, we've taken a really bold and, um, I think, assertive first step, right? We're not getting up. We're not going anywhere. We have enough faith to sit still. And then we look. That's what our practice is, to stop and see to turn the light around, to take the backward step. We look and we see, oof, (laughs) it's not pretty. I remember many years ago, um, Hogan Sensei gave a talk at an all-day sit at Zazen Kai in Albany at Kinpuan, and it was a uh, the Albany affiliate. It was a, out of someone's house, and it was a small. I don't know. There couldn't have been more than eight of us, um, if even that. And and uh, Hogan was a senior student then, and he came to uh, lead lead the sit. And he said, um, in his Hogan esque way, he said, "You know, you have to be brutally honest with yourself." Zazen is a practice of like being brutally honest. And I remember sitting there and thinking like, that sounds really good, but like, I don't know what you're talking about or like how to do that. What do you mean? Brutally honest. And I feel like um, I am really still working with that. How brutally honest Am I going to be with myself? How much do I actually want to realize my true nature? Like, how willing am I to actually let go of myself? There's a, um, a story about, you know, the, the wise fool Nasruddin. One day, while staying at a friend's house, Nasruddin peered over the wall into the neighbor's yard and saw there the most wonderful garden he had ever seen. He saw an old man patiently weeding a flower bed and asked, This is a beautiful garden. I would love to have one just like it. How do you make a garden like this? Twenty years hard work said the old man. Never mind, said Nasruddin. (laughs) 
So we sit down, we look, we see, and then unfolds a practice progression that is different for each of us, but marked by some of the same territory. We start to see that there's this veil, just to choose a word, between ourself, our deluded life, and our like Buddha life. There's like a gap. And once in a while, we start to sort of see the gap close or the veil draw back. We catch a glimpse. We have a sense of possibility and potential. And then in my experience, there's a long time of sort of like running forward and running back and like peering behind it and then closing my eyes and like willfully turning away and, and, and um, struggling and struggling and wanting a thing, but wanting it on my terms. And this veil, this veil is like, what is it? What is it? What is it? What separates us? When we sit down and we start to look at our mind and we see like what's going on, like, do you ever feel just like astonished? Like, where are all these thoughts coming from? Where are all of your opinions and ideas and judgments and perspectives that you cling to with such tenacity and vigor? Where are they coming from? And even when we begin to understand about like cause and effect and karma or like conditioning or like our psychological sort of imprinting from our family, like even with all that, like what is going on? And if you've ever like come back from being completely lost in your own like world, like back into like your body in the room and zazen, and it's like, where, where is it? Where is it? It was so vivid. I was so engrossed, invested, enchanted, and it's nowhere. Whoa. So we can start to tussle. We can start to tussle with this mind. And when I say we, of course, I'm talking about myself. I tussle. Trala Rinpoche says, thoughts are just the display of the mind. They may be waves stirring up, all, stirring up the all-ground consciousness, but this is not a fault. If you just rest loosely in them, they will disappear right there. This veil is the display of mind. Wang Bo uses the phrase, one mind, one mind is the Buddha. All Buddhas and ordinary beings are nothing but the one mind. And in um, the uh, preface to the um, collection of his teachings translated by John Blofeld, Blofeld suggests that um, perhaps Wang Bo really struggled with language. You know, we say that the Dharma is beyond, the heart of the Dharma, the heart of the teaching is beyond words and letters. It can't be communicated in, in language. 
And then so, you know, with great gratitude to all of these teachers who, like, go there for us um, and, and, and then have to sort of, like, deal with the mess that it makes, right? So um, Wang Bo, in, in John Blofeld, the translator, says, the text indicates that Wang Bo was not entirely satisfied with his choice of the word mind, to symbolize the inexpressible reality beyond the reach of conceptual thought. For he more than once explains that the one mind is not really mind at all, but he had to use some term or other, and mind had been used so often by his predecessors. And as mind conveys intangibility, it no doubt seemed to him a good choice. So mind, one mind is just a stand-in But see, we get attached to bringing forward our ideas and then we get tangled up. And actually, one mind is just a stand-in. Later on, Blofeld said he experimented with using... um, Wang Bo occasionally experimented, or didn't experiment, I don't know what he was doing, but he used the word absolute. All Buddhas and ordinary beings are nothing but the absolute. The absolute is the Buddha. But then John Blofeld says, but we, ah, be careful, don't impute your meaning, your thoughts about what that means when you hear the word absolute. And then he talks about his own um, uh, decisions as a translator, you know, trying to substitute universal mind instead of one mind, thinking that maybe that was more like, I don't know what, more intangible. (laughs) So as soon as we hear something like this, we start to head toward it. But that's not the right approach to take for this kind of journey. This is a journey where we really don't know where we're going. And if you think about actually like going on a trip of some kind, packing your bags to travel, and like really not knowing where you're going, it's kind of hard to conceive of that. Like you're going to at least know the next place, even if you've got like a very open-ended itinerary to really not know where we're going, to just like set out and have no idea. That can feel so disorienting. So we can um, try to compensate by orienting ourselves, which I think is a lot of what we do and a lot of what the teachers have to keep like shaking us out of. And that may be part of the reason, you know, one of the like, why is it so hard to encounter Buddha? Because we keep trying to fill it in, like where we're going, what we're looking for. And then we keep getting stuck in the quicksand of our conceptual mind. Daito Roshi used to use the phrase pulling the rug out a lot to talk about like the teachers sort of working with the student. And um, 
I, it sounds very apt to me in terms of like where we like start to fill in, we start to conceptualize, the teacher has to be like whoosh. But however we look at it, if you think about that aspect of face-to-face teaching where the teacher is like helping you keep going and like bolstering your faith in where you're headed even when you have like no idea and like helping you like keep track or stay on track or like come back to your basic practice because it's so easy to like get confused like make things up or else we have like experiences and we get really attached to them and uh, take them as, 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 as mile markers and get excited. <laughs> and then we're stuck again in the quicksand of our conceptual mind. I remember um, many years ago working with Daida Roshi and it might have even been a Rahatsu session. It was a very intense session for me, and I was working on Mu, and um, I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what was going on, but anyway, I had like an experience, or I didn't have an experience, or whatever, or I was concentrated, or I was just kind of like in a session, like state, and I felt, um, uh, you know, I, I, when, when you're working on Moo, you just have to sort of like develop a thin skin, a thick skin for rejection. So I was just like constantly like getting rejected in Dokusan and, um, you know, picking myself up and brushing myself off and like, you know, trying again. And, um, and I felt like I had like, I had some energy going through me and I felt like, okay, I think I've, I think I've got, I think I've got something to present here. And I went into Doksan and I was just like filled with this energy and I let out like a big like shout or whoop or whatever. And I felt like I was kind of in a like, you know, non-grasping state of mind. I thought like, okay, this feels like moo-ish. I think I might be onto something here. <laughs> and so I like gave this big shout and then I kind of looked at him with some like sense of expectation, like, okay. <laughs> and he said... He rang the bell, and I was like, what? what?" And he said, stop splattering your shit all over the room. Pick myself up from that, brush myself off. Yeah, I was like, okay. It was very um, decided. It was was extremely helpful, brutal in its way, um, so cutting, but extremely helpful as I realized, like, okay, I don't need to pursue that particular path any longer. Yeah. This, this thing about like working with, with the teacher is so um, important because we're, we're, our ideas, we can like read and study the Dharma and really like actually understand a lot. But how we understand how to like loosen our, our, um, grasping mind or how to work with impermanence like all of these sort of subtler teachings are not head teachings and um, actually the translation of Wang Bo that I shared is um, uh, I, I, I looked at the one in John Blofeld's book and I read his introduction but ultimately the one that I shared is slightly different and it's actually by Stephen Mitchell 
And um, Stephen Mitchell is, a, is an author and a poet and a translator and um, fairly well known. And many, many years ago, and I was counting them up, and it is almost 30 years ago. Oh my God. <laughs> When I was in college at UC Berkeley studying religion, Stephen Mitchell's translation of the Tao Te Ching had recently come out, just a, a, a year or two earlier. And it, was, um, it had been like extremely well-received, and even though there had been like a gajillion translations of the Tao Te Ching, like Stephen Mitchell's translation brought something fresh. And um, it was the first version of the Tao Te Ching that I had ever read, and I was really like moved by it and impressed, and um, he came as a guest lecturer to my Introduction to World Religion course. And, um, you know, I read the Tao Te Ching, and I read it as a seeker. I read it, when I read that um, text, I was reading it as, like, medicine. I was having such a difficult time in my life. I was so sad and really... Um, at the time, just filled with grief and um, kind of casting about for, like, meaning and purpose. And I read the Tao Te Ching, and I was like, oh, like, Dharma medicine. That's how I took it in. And so I was really excited to go to this guest lecture, and he, like, I can't remember what he talked about, but there were, like, you know, probably a few hundred people in the big hall on the campus of UC Berkeley. And um, I waited after the class was over because um, I wanted to talk to him. And I um, was so, oh my God, I can get nervous all over again just thinking about it. Yeah, it was like my heart was pounding. And sort of the crowd had dispersed and he was still like, there are a few people like, you know, chatting with him, like the big shot grad students and so on and so forth. And I like trotted myself up there. And like when I saw a, um, a break, I went up to him and I said, you know, can I ask you a question? And he, you know, he kind of looked at me and took me in and he was like, sure. And I started crying. And um, I just like started tumbling out, just like I had lost this close friend and I was feeling so lost. And I, basically I was like, help. Like, what can you say to help? And um, he did not know what to do. Yeah. And, you know, that was 30 years ago. Maybe Stephen Mitchell now would have had a better response. But, like, I felt like he got a little bit freaked out. And, you know, who can blame him? Um, and didn't, really didn't know what to say or do. And I was just left there, like, Oh, like, you know, I think, I think of that um, book. I think it's The Runaway Bunny. I can't remember which book it is, where, like, the little critter keeps going, like, are you my mother? Are you my mother? You know, to all of these other creatures. And I felt like I was, like, to Stephen Mitchell, I was, like, you are not my mother. Like, no. You know, like, you are not my teacher. Like, it's... We're done. And so I remember, like, leaving the auditorium and just feeling so, like, like um, uh, disappointed and at a loss. Fast forward maybe two years, two and a half years, something like that, when I came to the monastery. 
and I had face-to-face teaching for the first time with Miyotai Sensei. And I asked her basically the same question in Daisan, and I was completely met. You know, and just to share even a little more, when I said, like, da-da-da-da-da, and my friend died, and da-da-da-da-da, and, like, I don't know what to do, she, like, totally took that in, and she said, you know, don't waste it. So, when we encounter the teachings in the presence of a person, of a practitioner, it's a whole different thing. And this aspect of the Dharma, which is beyond words, like we can feel it in each other. And we do that for each other like all the time, actually. In session, sometimes it becomes so palpable. People's like practice, you know? And you would be hard-pressed to, like, describe, like, this is what practice is, and this is what we do, and this is sort of, like, it's, like, hard to, like, make it sound like anything. But when you feel it, you know. It's in that realm, our, like, very tangible, related, embodied realm, that what's invisible becomes visible. There have been all of these different um, times and places and ways that I've heard um, uh, the teachers and particularly Shugen Roshi talk about, like, you know, this is part of transmitting the Dharma. Like, when it's time for Jukai, like, Jukai is part of Dharma transmission. Beginning instruction, like, actually, it's really important. It's part of transmitting the Dharma. Seshen. Passing it on, passing it on. Service positions. (laughs) In the beginning of the pandemic, when, um, you know, there's a lot of concern about spreading COVID through touching things, we, like, really shifted um, basically the role of the ushers. (laughs) A change that has has lingered to some degree, because we're not passing out the sutra books anymore, Um, in the beginning of the pandemic and for several months, like, the ushers really didn't, like, hardly straighten up the zendo. They just sort of, like, would, like, you know, take care of egregious sort of misalignments. And other than that, it was kind of like, okay, well, we shouldn't be, like, touching each other's stuff. And then, you know, things have sort of evolved, and um, our awareness of what it is to be, like, living in a bubble has evolved, and the science on how COVID is transmitted has evolved, and one thing led to another, and Gokhan and Yukon and I were talking one day, and we were like, you know, about the ushers. Like, something's really been lost. <laughs> and so when I was training Laurel and Brant on usher, I was like, okay, we've got to, like, bring it back. And I have to say, it does my heart so good to see them, like, walking up and down the rows, like the ushers should, like, touching and adjusting and fluffing and, like, each little thing, like, their hands all over the place. Yes. That's part of it. I remember being trained as usher. And like, you know, I mean, 
you guys have it easy because in an actual Rahatsu session with 100 people here, that's a lot of Zafus and Zabutans to straighten. In fact, ushers get taken off of meal crews towards the end of the week because it takes so long to like get everything lined up. But I digress. <laughs> So how do we make this journey? Let's say we are serious about wanting to be free, and we've sat ourselves down, and we're looking inside, and we're seeing what we're seeing, and we're being brutally honest. What do we do with the mind? How do we realize if our mind is already this one mind, Buddha, but we can't see that, how do we practice to make it clear? Wang Bo says they don't know that all they have to do is put a stop to conceptual thinking and the Buddha will appear before them. He also says, when a thought suddenly flashes in your mind and you recognize its illusory nature, then you can enter into the state of all the Buddhas of the past. Your only concern should be, as thought follows thought, to avoid clinging to any of them. Dogen Zenji in Fukun Zazengi, this is Karl Bielfeldt's translation, says, cast aside all involvements, and discontinue all affairs. Do not think of good or evil. Do not deal with right or wrong. Halt the revolutions of the mind, intellect, and consciousness. Stop the calculations of thoughts, ideas, and perceptions. In the Mahamudra Aspiration Prayer, by, I believe, the third Karmapa, It goes unspoiled by intellectual and deliberate meditation and unmoved by the winds of ordinary distractions. May we be skilled in sustaining the practice of mind essence, being able to rest in unfabricated and innate naturalness. The Cloud of Unknowing, a 14th century English Christian mystic, writes, be sure not to think of anything but God himself, so that nothing may work in your mind or in your will, but only God himself. And do whatever you can to forget all the creatures that God ever made and all their works, so that your thought and your desire are not directed or stretched toward any of them, neither in general nor in particular, but let them be and take no heed of them. We're sort of left to ourselves to find our way with this kind of instruction. And that's hard, I think. In fact, I found this amazing passage in Carl Bielfeld's book on, on Dogen that he attributes, Bielfeld attributes it to Gakudo Yojinshu, Guidelines for Studying the Way, but then I couldn't find it anywhere else. So he like quotes it in his translation. And then I was like, oh, I want to find the context for this. And I couldn't find anything even remotely like it in the whole Google sphere. It was one of those one hit, 
like that's it. And it was exactly what I was looking at in front of me already. But Dogen says, it is extremely difficult to regulate the mind. Intelligence is not a primary factor. Learning is not primary. Mind, intellect, and consciousness are not primary. Thoughts, ideas, and perceptions are not primary. Without employing any of these, must one, one must regulate the body and mind, and by this enter the Buddha Marga, the Buddha Path. When the two attributes of body and rest are perfectly clear and do not arise, this is the regulation of body and mind. I love that Dogen says it is extremely difficult to regulate the mind. I'm like, thank you, Dogen. Finally. <laughs> but when he uses that word regulate the mind I feel like he's talking about the same thing as um, being able to rest in unfabricated and innate naturalness or sustaining the practice of mind essence it's the same thing how do we do it Well, um, one thing that I found really helpful is um, uh, a teaching from Ken McLeod, who is a Westerner who trained extensively for decades in um, the Vajrayana. I believe he was a senior student of Kalu Rinpoche and um, has kind of distinguished himself as a Western Dharma teacher by um, offering pragmatic Buddhism. So he kind of... um, Uh, breaks things down in ways that can be really helpful. And on his website, he has a section called um, something like up against a wall. Like if you're feeling confused, I was like, oh, what's that? So I opened it up and it's it's a worthy um, kind of uh, uh, exposition of what he says that as practitioners, sometimes we confuse um, method with result. And so, like, if you tell someone, relax, they might feel like, I don't know how to relax, and then they get even tenser, right? Um, But if you tell them, okay, take a breath, take another breath, then you're, like, showing them, this is a method, this is how you relax. And so, McLeod is saying, when we offer directions, like, open your mind, or be at one with your body. These can be frustrating as practitioners if we take them as methods. Because actually, he says, they're indicating a result. The method is, drumroll please, resting your attention on the breath. That's the method. That is the method, okay? And the result is that your mind opens, that your body relaxes, that you come into being. But the method is your practice. So whatever your practice is, to be clear about that and to just cleave to it, cleave to it. That is how I would navigate, how I do navigate if I'm getting tangled in the quicksand of my conceptual mind, right? And I'm thinking like, how do I put an end to these concepts? Stop, stop. 
Find your practice. Just trust that. Just trust that. It has been handed down for centuries. By this very seeking, they lose it. Since they are using Buddha to seek for Buddha, using mind to seek for mind. Even if they continue for millions of eons, they will never be able to find it. They don't know that all they have to do is put a stop to conceptual thinking. I wanted to just try substituting in the method. They don't know that all they have to do is just devotedly follow their breath. And the Buddha will appear before them because this mind is the Buddha and the Buddha is all living beings. So to stop conceptual thinking is maybe the result rather than the method. We can really twist ourselves around trying to stop our thoughts. I don't think that that's what Huang Bo means. So to close, one more um, teaching along these lines. A number of you were also part of Judy Leaf's retreat on Milarepa um, that was uh, about a month ago or so. And um, in it, she um, uh, kind of closed with a teaching that Milarepa offered to his, um, one of his students, Palderbaum. And um, she, Palderbaum was a very um, eager and excited student and asked Milarepa to teach, teach her the Dharma that would bring her to Buddhahood. And um, Milarepa responds with a song that says, um, he, he uses four different analogies to speak about how, to, how do you meditate. And one of them is the analogy of the ocean. Take the great ocean as an example and meditate without ups or downs. Take your own mind as the object and meditate without suspicions. And Palderbaum says, it's easy to meditate on the ocean, but not so easy to meditate on the waves. Now, tell me how to meditate on waves. It's easy to meditate on my own mind, but not so easy to meditate on thoughts. Now tell me how to meditate on thoughts. And Milarepa responds, if it's easy to meditate on the ocean, waves are the magic of the ocean. Rest in the nature of the ocean itself. If it's easy to meditate on your own mind, thoughts are the magic of the mind. Rest in the nature of mind essence itself. Tralig Rinpoche, I'm repeating this. Thoughts are just displays of the mind. They may be waves stirring up the all-ground consciousness, but this is not a fault if you just rest loosely in them. They will disappear right there. Thanks for listening. Did you know that Zen Mountain Monastery is live streaming all Dharma talks and daily Zazen during the coronavirus quarantine? 
visit our website to learn about all the online programs being offered at this time. Just go to zmm.org and click on the link at the very top of the page, or scroll down and click on Retreats.